Hello, hello, and welcome to another Omtown Daily News Show, Season 2, Episode 131, for May 11th, 2023. I lost my seat, and something bad happened. And more news. Here's a quick rundown of today's articles that we'll be talking about tonight. We're going to fear the gig economy, Peloton recall due to uh, faulty seeds, Fear the streaming wars are first the streaming wars and then the fast food wars are coming. Renewable energy stuck in limbo. Mechabellum looks fun. A new CEO for Twitter still feels like it's pivoted full wingnut. Genome rearrangement sounds problematic. Another Chick-fil-A jamming up a road. Dungeons and Dragons gets its own streaming channel. An ex-ubiquity engineer becomes current convict. Tons of trash stopped from reaching the ocean. And more news. Let's get into the show. Hello, hello. I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown. Well, that's hometown. Uh, almost 200. No, almost 500 episodes. And I still mess that up anyway. And then I can't even count how many episodes I've done. At any rate, that's hometown. The AI is still off doing whatever AIs do when they're on vacation. Although this isn't vac- vacation for the AI either. At any rate, not much is going on. Uh, we're still working on some of the features in Omentown. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that we've got the audio bugs worked out. Although I might be. Wow. I, suddenly my mixer is doing a really good job. Uh, like volume wise, it's just like redlining. Wow. Weird. Anyway, let me know if it's clipping. I'll find out when I actually listen to the stream afterward. So let's move on to the next article. The first article for tonight. The continuity report is where this article is housed. It was aggregated from a variety Writer's fear of joining the gig economy fuels WGA picket lines. So the the little snippet from Variety says, let the gig economy debate begin. One of the most contentious issues in the writer's strike that erupted May 2nd is the assertion that the Writers Guild of America, uh, that screenwriting is in danger of becoming part of the gig economy. The WGA's proposed solutions mandatory staffing minimums and guaranteed weeks of employment. So let's go over to Cynthia Littleton at variety.com who wrote this article and it says, uh, I am the example of why we're striking says Cindy Chupak, a two time Emmy winner for her work on modern family and sex and the city. By the way, a Mandela effect is saying sex in the city. I have always thought that it's sex in the city, but apparently it is sex and the city. Anyway, 
Chupac has scrambled for the past few years to assemble enough writing jobs. A few minimum room or mini rooms, a pilot script, a feature script or two to keep her income steady. But her bigger concern is the fate of the younger, less experienced writers that she's worked with in mini rooms all over town. So the, the fear of this becoming a gig economy, gig work kind of ecosystem, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of competition, but I don't think that uh, like full-time minimums are really the solution because an organization only needs X number of writers, writers that fill the particular bill. But I've also had this problem where uh, the concept of other duties as assigned and quote unquote working 40 hours, even though a person who's better skilled and capable can punch out, you know, 2000 words in a fewer amount of time uh, hours than uh, somebody who's just started. And so why should I work 40 hours when it, the work, quote unquote, is done? Um, but employers don't see it that way. They, they say, well, I pay you for 40 hours. And if I drive you harder to do more then well, I win. Well, the guild's remedy is to implementing staffing minimums of at least six writers on a series that runs six episodes with one additional writer to be hired for every two episodes beyond the initial six. It also seeks to establish guarantees on the duration of that job. I can imagine why they would bulk, saying the proposals would add enormous costs when production budgets are already staggeringly high. According to WGA data, a typical writer on a streaming show works 20 to 24 weeks. The studios uh, point out that a staff writer working at minimum would earn 90,000, well, 90,920 over 20 weeks. At the writer-producer level, 20 weeks of WGA scale is worth about $150,000. And writers are also uh, earn fees per script. So it seems like there's a lot of squeezing um, to get the juice. And that juice drives up prices. Now, what a streaming service is making... Um, you know, it's all <laughs> it's all very subjective. And it, uh, another one of the subjective variables is what do investors and what do the boards and what do the various upper echelon that 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 final tier that gets all of the profits at the end of the day, whatever those are, what do they demand? What's their internal rate? What do they demand? as their profit margin, because every time there is something like this that gets kicked into action, it chips away at that margin. And if the filthy rich people want to be even more filthy rich, then they'll sit there and let all of you suffer protesting. Yeah, sure. They'll lose some money, but they'll be able to drive you into the ground before you can you know grab something on solid footing and and show that you're not going to waver well there's going to be a whole lot of people in short order ending up not being able to sustain this 
Um, down here at the bottom, it says Nikita Hamilton has the ambition to become a showrunner, but she has had little experience in production beyond writer's rooms with small staffs. The only time, quote, the only time uh, I've ever been to set was on my first script as a co-writer and I was still an assistant, Hamilton told Variety as she picketed May 5th outside Amazon Studios in Culver City. I've worked on four shows since then. The term gig economy has become a lightning rod in the public policy and legal realm. It typically refers to employment that is entirely freelance. Think Uber and DoorDash drivers, often on a day-to-day -day basis without benefits or other protections that full-time employment provides. The WGA strategically um, invoked the phrase in much of its strike-related communications to its 11,500 members. But a lot of this is built off of a portfolio demonstrating that you have the writing chops or the communication skills or whatever it might be, the, the whatever you want to call it, that magic that drives you into or gets you driven into a writing room. Um, my fear is that these mandates will drive costs up. Those costs are going to go to the... Uh, customer when having TV uh, amounts to if you have like a YouTube TV um, and you have it for a family let me see let me make sure what it is right now because I thought it was one thing but it might be another um, I think it's yeah $75 so depending on uh, and it, it it depends. So you pay $75 and you don't get all of the channels that you would get from conventional cable, you know, wireline cable. Um, but streaming services are very limited in what they allow. So YouTube TV is 70, let's say 75 bucks. I'm rounding up. But then you also have to pay for um, Netflix if you want certain movies if you want certain uh, shows and you have to subscribe to Prime because it has certain shows certain things and and you have to uh, subscribe to Disney Plus because that's where all of the Marvel stuff is being pulled into or you have to go hunting for it if you can find and you have to go hunting for it all around but I mean let's make it abundantly clear so by the end of the month, what used to be, you know, maybe $85 for the max level of stuff 25 years ago is now you're looking at like $300 because everything is $15 a month. Nowadays, everything is um, nickel and dimed, you know, and this is before th this is right now. This is before the. Um, protest. So you can just imagine how much is going to get thrown over to the consumer. But meanwhile, it says, how can you afford to pay Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav $245 million in a single year, but you can't pay six writers, says Megan, referring to Zaslav's stock grant inflated pay package for 2021. How is it that you used to be able to pay 12 writers on a staff when the show was on broadcast TV, but now that it's streaming, six is some ridiculous number. I don't think the math adds up. And it doesn't. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what the problem is because it certainly isn't the bandwidth issue. It isn't the number of customers. They have more control over um, advertising. They have the ability to wholly disable anybody's ability to skip over it because it becomes a part of the stream. Um, they get fantastic metrics. So what really is the, the problem here? Yeah, it might be that there is a large cohort of people that aren't tech savvy and aren't interested in streaming to streaming services or from streaming services. Um, but then these streaming services have record profits. So really, where is the problem? Why isn't more money flowing down to the people who are the boots on the ground that are making the content? You know, a streaming service or a company that uh, streams whatever a show it can't it can't stream on nothing it needs these writers it needs the actors so what it sounds like to me is that the writers don't mean much but the actors mean everything and the profits ultimately have to be massive because the stockholders want it to be massive you can't just be a business you have to have stockholders nowadays so that you can grow instead of with massive amounts of money that's all leveraged off of the perceived value of the stock and its future earnings as a company. I mean, speculation has made the stock market massive and basically the, the, the people at the end of the day that get punished for it are the people that aren't profiting off of the rising prices, you know, just straight old consumers. So there you go, writers. This is the, I mean, I don't know if anybody's even said it, but obviously you're the lowest people on the totem pole, yet you're the one that's the ground. You're the foundation. Actors can't act without your writing. <laughs> the company can't hire the actors without your writing. The problem is that the only people that are going to get gigs are the people that are good writers. So you kind of are in a gig economy because you write something really good. It gets, if it's a work for hire, then it is wholly owned by the company and the contract that you have struck regarding that material and everything else that's already entrenched in the industry, right? You make money based off of how much you own of the, each script and the airtime and et cetera, et cetera. You get these residuals. Or you do the work as a one-shot deal. You get $100,000 and you're told to go away. So it's either force them to hire you at a certain rate and you're there, but at what point can you get fired? You know, this is a at will environment. So you can quit anytime you want to, and they can fire you any, anytime they want to. But that's how the entirety of the United States has begun to act like since the nineties. Um, it, it suddenly shifted to that. There's no loyalty for the company and there's no loyalty towards the employee. Yeah, everybody is basically a gig worker. It's just sometimes it's a long-term gig. I could be fired at any time without cause. As long as I'm not part of a protected class, they can fire me. 
And if they fire me and I believe that I was part of a protected class, whatever the reason may be, you know, um, I'm older, so I get fired because I believe that they thought that I was too old to work in that industry. Okay, well, then I can bring a suit, but I better be coming with uh, some serious information to support my claim. Otherwise, I'm just spending money. So, I don't know. This isn't as easy as um, just them capitulating and saying to the Writers Guild of America, all right, all right, we'll give you whatever you want. Because it's going to end up having a knock-on effect that customers are going to be paying more. Um, and the, the people that are providing the jobs are going to take more and just kind of barely barely meet your demands. I guarantee you at the end of this, customers are going to pay more and they're going to still have record profits. And all it's done is drive the prices up for the end users. It would be all fine with me if filthy rich people would take less and let the middle class develop again. It's been the foundation of America. And it's just getting drained of its wealth. Let's move on to the next article. Uh, this is the reason why I lost my seat and um, something bad happened. Peloton recalls over 2 million bikes due to faulty seats. That's right. You can be pedaling away and your bike falls off. That's when something bad happens. Peloton is eager for people to know it's more than that bike company. Unfortunately, those bikes are at the heart of the beleaguered uh, fitness company's latest woes. Today, Peloton and the U.S. Consumer Pro Product Safety Commission issued a voluntary recall of 2.2 million Peloton bikes after 35 reports of seats either breaking or falling off during use. I guess this is a Bloomberg article that came to hometown by way of The Verge. So 13 injuries, 35 reports including a fractured wrist, uh, wrist, sorry, that it says here, the writer, the, um, it was written by Victoria song and it says there's more here. Uh, the writer focusing on wearables, health tech, and more with 11 years of experience before coming to the verge. She worked for Gizmodo and PC magazine. Um, so, uh, a Bloomberg report offers some more details about the faulty seat, according to the author of the article. Namely, the part that attaches the seat to the bike frame could potentially break off at the welding joint. Okay, well, there's no easy fix for that um, unless they reorganize the the bike and, and, and can fix it without having to do any industrial design, <laughs> like welding or something like that, industrial engineering, I should say. Um, of the 35 reports, 13 resulted in injuries, which is just a horrible ratio. Um, you know, one third of the over one third of the uh, reports resulted in injuries, including a fractured wrist, lacerations and bruises. And if it breaks off at its welding joint, there's a good way that you're going to end up scratching things that you don't want scratched or cut. Uh, the affected bikes were sold at Peloton and Dick's Sporting Goods retail and online stores, as well as on Amazon. Only the PL01 models are affected, and you can check the name and number on the label uh, on the side front fork near the flywheel. 
Uh, it should also have a non-swivel display and a red P logo followed by white lettering on the uh, frame. The recall doesn't affect Bike Plus owners or original bike owners who bought their bikes overseas. Anyway, they recommend an immediate stoppage. That's your PSA for the day. At least from hometown. Um, here, let's move on to the next article. Uh, this next article is in the Hatch Ideas channel. A stream, the streaming wars are over, and it's time for media to figure out what's next. It says here, Disney loss of 4 million subscribers during the first three months of the year cements the end of the streaming wars. I don't know about that. I think people are all being forced to go back to work. So... They're too busy going to work. <laughs> they don't have as much time to hang out and do this uh, streaming stuff. Alex Sherman is the author of this over at CNBC. Uh, the media and entertainment industry is currently focused on raising prices and cutting costs. Disney lost 4 million Disney Plus subscribers in the quarter, most of which came from India. I'm not sure why that is then, because... Um, I don't know. I'd have to look into it a little more. At some point, the industry will need a new growth narrative. The most obvious candidate is gaming. Um, this person here says, oh, and let me, yeah, Alex Sherman um, says that they are calling it the streaming wars are over 2019 to 2023. Rest in peace. So the race between the biggest media and entertainment companies to add streaming subscribers knowing consumers will only pay for a limited number of them is finished. Sure, the participants are still running. They're just not trying to win anymore. Yeah, they're raising rates um, and doing mergers and acquisitions and then finding out that it's bloated, but would have been sustainable if they would have been left alone. So Disney had Hulu. Now Hulu is getting shut down and integrated into Disney Plus. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, Disney Plus lost 600,000 subscribers. So <clears throat> the other 3.3, right? Oh, no, it says Disney lost 4.6 million subscribers uh, for its streaming service in India. Disney Plus Hotstar. Uh, in the U.S., Canada, Disney Plus lost 600,000 600, subscribers. So... It's weird. They say that they lost 4 million subscribers during the first three months, but then they say 4.6 million just for India and then another 600,000 for U.S. and Canada. I don't understand. Anyway, um, and this isn't entirely true. The streaming wars are continuing, but it's more like a cold war. Uh, not so overt conflict, but they're still going to be working on getting uh, products to sell you, to motivate you, to create that want. Um, that that'll that's underway right now. And before I go on to the next article, because I'm just going to go on to the next article, um, let me throw our current articles into the chat. So at least they're part of the VOD. Sorry about that. Um, they'll be part of the show notes. Um, 
as soon as I can get them all done. So let's move on to the next article because there isn't really much more to say about this. There's a lot more at the article, um, but there isn't much more to say. They're basically saying that the, the next step is to, to switch to gaming, but that's not it, folks. It says that <clears throat> what? OK, so I'll, let me continue with this article then. Raising prices and cutting costs isn't a great growth strategy. Streaming was a growth strategy. Maybe it'll come back with a bit of a cheaper advertising tiers and Netflix impending password sharing crackdown. This is all old news discussion. Then they say, the, uh, but it's highly unlikely growth will ever return to the level seen during the pandemic in the early years of mass streaming. That probably means media and entertainment industry will need a new growth story soon. The most obvious candidate is gaming. No, <laughs> just no. Twitch pretty much has a, a lock on it. YouTube could because it has so much momentum. All it has to do is facilitate the, the gaming side of things more. Um, some type of discovery, you know, um, I'm barely ever seen um, as small time. Um, I do a one hour show, one podcast. I don't talk about it with people publicly. I don't hype it up. You know, I'm, I'm monitoring the word of mouth kind of a thing. I would encourage you to go and tell friends and, and, uh, come and hang out here at nine o'clock or download the podcast or watch the YouTube videos or, um, come over here to Twitch, but, um, it is what it is. I, there's no gaming really on YouTube, at least not live. There's a massive amount of recorded video, but I don't think that this, I don't think it translates into um, a service that um, makes any sense in this dynamic, you know, in the, in the streaming media space. Um, Twitch exists because of user created content that's live, um, not produced, not published and YouTube already takes care of it. So what are these streaming services really going to do? Netflix is not going to, uh, do anything to impact, um, gaming on Twitch. Um, if they wanted to do it live and they're not going to touch even close YouTube's produced gaming content. Yeah. Disney shut down its metaverse division. Um, tabletop gaming D and D is going to have its own, uh, streaming, uh, channel, <laughs> an entire channel. It should just come over to, uh, to Twitch and hang out there. Um, but maybe they think that it's not big enough. I don't know. We'll talk about it because it's one of the articles, but yeah, I don't think gaming, they say perhaps the gaming wars is the next chapter. No, that was already won <laughs> and Twitch is the winner. So I think everybody needs to move on from that, but I'm going to move on from this article. So this next article is in the Hatch Ideas channel as well. Renewable energy projects worth billions stuck on hold. Major renewable energy projects being delayed by more than 10 years as grid reaches capacity. Uh, this is an article over at BBC.com uh, by Esme Stallard and Justin Rowlett. 
Um, they say billions of pounds worth of green energy project. This looks like like uh, earth sized uh, teeth, like fake teeth, prosthetic teeth. Uh, I don't know what these are. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I just don't know what they are, but they do look like teeth to me. Um, if you're watching that or if you're listening to this as a podcast, you have to go and watch the VOD. Sorry, go over to YouTube. Um, some new solar and wind sites are waiting up to 10 to 15 years to be connected because of the lack of capacity in the system known as the grid. Thanks for anyway. Um, the government and private investors have spent 198 billion pounds on renewable power infrastructure since 2010, but now energy companies are warning that significant delays to connect their green energy projects to the system will threaten their ability to bring more green power online. A new wind farm or solar site can only start supplying energy to people's homes once it has been plugged into the grid. But apparently, the grid is now the problem. The grid itself. Longest grid queues in Europe. There are currently more than $200 billion billion pounds, uh, worth of projects sitting in the connections queue, according to the BBC. Around 40% of them face a connection wait of at least a year, according to National Grid's own figures. That represents delayed investments worth tens of billions of pounds. Yeah, because they're no longer selling, well, they're not selling or supplying anything anywhere. So all of that is waste. I don't know. You know, you, you can't authorize all of that kind of production and then go, uh, nope, sorry. Uh, you can't connect it. Um, the rest of the grid sucks. So too bad. They're going to have to fix it. Um, here, let me throw, let me throw this, um, into chat as well. There you go. Okay. So let's move on to the next. Uh, this article is in the Warcrafters channel and it's titled, I can't stop playing this auto battling strategy masterpiece. According to this author, um, I'm just going to go over to uh, PCGamer.com. John Beagle Teasdale um, is saying that Mechabellum is fast, fun, and deeply strategic, and it owes it all to one brilliant rule. And that is that it's an auto battler. Um, this is basically a combat simulator, um, sort of like um, totally accurate battle sim, but it's match based. So they send their enemy, or they send their enemies, you send your heroes, that kind of a thing. It's the seventh round of a match, and my survival is balanced on a hair. My infantry is being mopped up by napalm artillery. Infantry I bought to screen my tanks from enemy marksmen uh, mechs. Back in round two, when that was the biggest problem that they had, once their infantry die to the rockets and fire, my now unprotected tanks die to the snipers. So... This person is retelling their um, interaction in uh, Mechabellum, which basically it's an isometric battler. Uh, they say it's an auto battler. I, I haven't used that term before, um, but it's um, kind of like, uh, what is it called? Command and Conquer um, Starcraft. 
it's kind of like that in that it's very high resolution detailed um, combat units and you direct them um, into battle. But once they're directed to go into battle, it's all automated. Um, you don't actually grab, you have no discrete function within this. Um, and it's actually sitting in my uh, Steam cart right now for $11.99. So uh, go and check it out. It, it looks like it's a lot of fun, but I just haven't um, been able to play it yet. Um, they say, while the set of options are random and different each round, Machabellum keeps things fair by offering the exact same random set to each player. Also letting you read your enemy's future moves by knowing whatever they picked was in one of your four cards or those four cards. You can't see what your opponents placed each uh, deployment until the battle starts. So prediction is an important part of Mechabellum's matches and uh, guessing the when, what and where of or it says of how your op opponents deploy their units lets you place predictive counters to exploit whatever you think they're about to do. So this is a pretty neat game. Um, and basically you're behind a wall of ignorance until it's removed and you get to see that little portion of what's coming at you. Um, not necessarily on like a real battlefield. So this article is quite expansive and has videos in it. Um, I won't play the video, but I do encourage you to go over and check out this um, auto-battling combat sim. It, it's pretty cool. I dig it. Um, so far, watching people play it, um, I think I'm going to end up playing it, uh, if not for the fact that a Diablo 4 stress test starts tomorrow. So, Anyway, let's go on to the next article. Um, this next article is uh, Elon Musk says he's picked a new CEO for Twitter. I still don't think that anything's going to change culturally. Um, I'm going to go straight over to the article. Let me throw it um, into chat real quick. Let me do one more thing here. There we go. Okay. So let me go over to Quartz, uh, QZ.com. That's where the article is. And Scott Nover is the author of this. Says Elon Musk is the owner of Twitter, but he's been uh, serving as CEO. He's also been serving as CEO. Uh, this isn't a foreign role to him. He's the chief executive of Tesla and SpaceX, as well as a major stakeholder in both. <clears throat> well, he bought his way into Tesla. And uh, all the engineers were the reason why they got a massive grant to save SpaceX that imploded to all those engineers. <clears throat> anyway, but shortly after taking over Twitter in 2022, Musk suggested that he would, in fact, hire someone to relieve him of his CEO duties. So that's exactly what he's done. Um, but I think he's probably trying to um, just stay in the background and control everything still, except that there's going to be a different CEO. Um, they named the person today, but... Um, I, I've forgotten the name. I don't think that it's, I'm not sure who it is. Hmm. Doggone it. It just fell out of my head. So I don't think that they talk about it, right? Yeah, they stop. <clears throat> anyway, um, we know 
who it is. I just can't tell you right now. I'm sorry. Let me go on to the next article. This next article is in the Mobile Channel. Researchers discover mechanism responsible for genome rearrangements, which sounds like a bad thing and a good thing, maybe depending on what it's rearranging. The goal of every dividing cell is to accurately segregate its genome into two genetically identical daughter cells. However, this process of 10 goes awry. Um, of 10, I'm an idiot. Uh, this process often goes awry and uh, may be responsible for a new class of chromosomal abnormalities found in cancers and congenital disorders. Um, let's go over to... There you go. Um, fizz.org. And is this from, um, let's see. <clears throat> want to find out who, who all and where it's actually from. I think it's Utah. Um, anyway, I think it's Utah Southwestern Medical Center, or UT. And cancer genomes are remarkably complex, says this article. Uh, they don't have an actual name for the author, just the organization. Um, their findings provide a fundamental understanding of how diverse patterns of chromosomal alterations form and drive cancer development, said Peter Lai, or Lee. Not sure how they pronounce it. PhD, Assistant Professor of Pathology and Cell Biology at UT Southwestern. <clears throat> One second who co-led the study with Yu Fen Lin, another PhD, senior research scientist. So they say that the paper uh, focused on a process called chromothripsis, a term derived from the Greek god describing, or sorry, not even a god, from Greek describing the catastrophic shattering of chromosomes into small fragments. That does not sound pleasant. Um, in the study, Dr. Lee and colleagues at the Lee lab investigated how shattered chromosomes from abnormal structures um, called micronuclei move around during cell division. The researchers found that the chromosome fragments remain stuck together during cell division instead of dispersing throughout the cell. This allowed the shattered chromosome to segregate into a unit or as a unit into one of the two daughter cells where the cell's DNA repair machinery haphazardly stitched the pieces back together in the incorrect order to form a rearranged chromosome. And they only fit a certain way. So it must be doing something to facilitate this. The top researchers identified a protein uh, complex consisting of CIP2A and TOPBP1 that tethers the DNA fragments during, uh, or together during cell division. The genomic uh, signatures of this process can be detected across 25 cancer types, resulting in the loss of critical tumor suppressor genes. So to me, it seems like they've just found the cause. <laughs> The cause of cancer of what actually triggers it um or at least what they're saying suppressor genes which would have uh, terminated it in some way but really unprecedented uh duplication 
Um, and the fact that they don't suffer from apoptosis where they destroy they die. Um, that is what cancer is, right? The cell division, uncontrolled cell division, and they don't die. Um, so this is the critical tumor suppressor genes is what they're saying is lost. Hopefully, maybe that they might be taking a stab in the dark as to what is actually lost, but at least in cancers, it apparently is correlated um, or it coexists um, in cancer cells that these haphazard genomic structures um, exist. These findings build upon previous work by Dr. Lee, who engineer who has engineered unique experimental systems to recreate and study chromothripsis in the laboratory. That is interesting. Let's go on to the next article. This next article is in uh, the Daily News show. A Chick-fil-A restaurant failed to build an extra lane to handle traffic, leaving city officials. Um and a nearby funeral home fuming. Um, let me back up for just a split second and throw this into the chat. There you go. Um, and now this one as well. We'll get there, folks. Um, uh, this is probably the fourth time that I've witnessed a Chick-fil-A overwhelming the standard traffic. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it that at that. <laughs> uh, Chick Fil A didn't build a traffic a new traffic lane or any traffic lane. It promised outside a new store in Bradenton, Florida. Now residents and the mayor are worried about drive-through traffic spilling into the city streets. Chick Fil A has long had problems managing car traffic at its stores. Um, well, you crave it for it now, eh? And uh, that's what happens. You end up having to build extra lanes. Businessinsider.com's uh, Alex Bitter uh, put this article together. And it says uh, Chick-fil-A has long had problems managing car traffic. So let's see if they talk about this because. Um, no, not yet. Let's see. I want to see about the other stuff because this is a pretty fairly simple article. Uh, the fact that the lane which the city asked Chick-fil-A to build in 2021 isn't there now is uh, that the store is operating is a problem, uh, Brown told the Herald. It's a no-win situation for us, he said. Brown did not immediately respond to Insider's request for an interview. Well, I guess we'll see. A history of Chick-fil-A drive through concerns. There we go. So Atlanta-based Chick-fil-A is among the most popular fast food chains in the U.S. with all with non-mall locations averaging $8 million annually. That's averaging. So I don't know how many stores they actually have, but um, it's quite interesting that they're, uh, they're so popular, even in the face of some controversy that they've been through. But that popular is, popularity has made drive-through traffic a problem at numerous Chick-fil-A's um, businesses located Nearby Chick-fil-A stores, especially those in shopping centers, say that lengthy drive-through lines block parking spaces and make it harder for customers to frequent their own stores. Yes, all over the place. Um, <laughs> and uh, earlier this year, the City Council of Charlotte, North Carolina, approved a plan requiring 
Chick-fil-A to demolish a restaurant and replace it with a drive-through only store. Snarled uh, traffic leading into the store as well as pedestrian safety were among the issues that spurred the change. Yeah, and I know of several that have done this as well. Um, as part of the deal, Chick-fil-A also agreed to provide $70,000 toward a new traffic signal and other improvements outside the restaurant. Now, if they're the cause of the traffic, then they need to um, assist in remedying it um, or find another location. Oh, ow. That hurts, doesn't it? Let's move on. Um, this next article is in Late Night Geeks channel. Dungeons and Dragons gets its very own streaming channel. I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. Um, after the film Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves became a hit, topping $200,000 in the worldwide box office. Hasbro wants more. Of course they do. Hasbro-owned production company E1 announced Thursday that it's launching a new free ad-supported streaming television, or fast channel, dedicated to the uh, widely popular role-playing tabletop game. Variety was the first to cover the announcement, but uh, we got it from... Uh, TechCrunch. Lauren Forrestal put the article together, and of course, Variety was involved. Dungeons & Dragons Adventure is a 24-hour fast channel set to launch this summer. It will feature original programming based on campaigns played by content creators, third-party content from top influencers, as well as older stuff like the 1983 animated Dungeons & Dragons series. Shows coming to the new channel will include Encounter Party, Faster, Purple Worm, Kill, Kill. All right. And Heroes Feast, which is a cooking competition talk show based on recipes of the best-selling cookbook, Heroes Feast. Um, Hasbro, Hasbro uh, and Dungeons and Dragons is basically not well-received anymore. So it's interesting that this comes on the heels of the OGL um fiasco debacle whatever you want to call it um this this really screams they needed content for this so the terms i think probably would have allowed them to utilize your content as creators using their licensed product um <clears throat> Huh, that's quite interesting. Well, uh, I'm going to keep, I'm going to go through the rest of the articles. We only have two left. Um, we'll call it a short day. Let me throw that article into the chat as well. Sorry about that. Um, all of these are available over at ometown.showbot.tv. You can vote on the articles that you find interesting. Um, and um, we'll, we'll keep moving forward. Um, Ex-Ubiquity engineer behind breathtaking data theft gets six years prison term. This is over in the word in law. An ex-Ubiquity engineer, Nicholas Sharp, was sentenced to six years in prison yesterday after pleading guilty in a New York court to stealing tens of gigabytes of confidential data, demanding a $1.9 million ransom from his former employer and then publishing the data publicly when his demands were refused. Idiot. So I think ubiquity, ubiquity is great. Um, really simple adoption, 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I could go on, but anyway, I think that they're um, pretty amazing. Ex-Ubiquity engineer behind breathtaking data theft gets six-year prison term. Ashley Ballinger over at ArsTechnica.com put this article together. <clears throat> However, um, so they say it was a sharp head asked for no prison time, telling United States District Judge Catherine Polk Fela that the cyber attack was actually an unsanctioned cybersecurity drill that left Ubiquity a safer place for itself and for its clients. Bloomberg reported in a court document, Sharp claimed that Ubiquity CEO Robert Para had prevented Sharp from resolving outstanding security issues, and Sharp told the judge that this led to an idiotic hyperfixation on fixing those security flaws. <clears throat> Obviously, the judge would reply how I would reply. It's not up to you. Uh, but I wouldn't have phrased it the way that Fela said. It was not up to Mr. Sharp to play God in this circumstance. Uh, interesting turn of phrase. Anyway, um, the thing that did them in really is the fact that they released it into the wild. Uh, amongst the other ethical moral concern here, drawing attention to a security breach in a public way probably would have done this person more good because extortion, ransom, um, breaking into the system, etc., without authorization, uh, it was just a series of stupid decisions, but the, you know, releasing it into the wild is when it goes really off the charts. So it's a bummer that the person they tried to get 10 years, but they ended up getting six. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, he was disgruntled as an, at his employer planning to leave the company and wanted to extort millions of dollars and cause damage on his way out. This is why we can't have nice things, folks. This is why, um, this is why they turn off your access and walk you out of the building. If they have the slightest incl inclination that you are capable of doing something like this, they end your access first and then escort you out of the building. <laughs> That's it. Remotely lock your uh, electronics if they're controlled and owned by the um, organization and you're done. You're basically just just walk out. Be magnanimous about it, even if they are not. The timeline instead appears to reveal a calculated plan to conceal the data theft and extort nearly 2 million from ubiquity. So that's in a sentencing memo. Wow. There's a lot more over here at this article at Ars Technica. Um, so again, like usual, I urge you to go over and check that article out. And finally, the last article for tonight is over in uh, the mobile channel 77 fewer tons of trash made it into the ocean thanks to this experimental la county device <clears throat> so all of this flooding and all of this uh water in california has basically pushed a bunch of stuff into rivers and streams creeks and whatnot um overflows and everywhere really <clears throat> so 
Um, this article by Terry Castleman over at fizz.org says in the first storm season of a two year pilot project, Bologna Creek, it's B-A-L-L-O-N-A, Bologna Creek Trash Interceptor 007 stopped nearly 155,000 pounds of garbage from flowing out to the ocean. Its performance has exceeded our wildest expectations, said Boyan Slat, founder and chief executive of the Ocean Cleanup. The Dutch nonprofit partnered with Los Angeles County Department of Public Works to introduce the interceptor in October. The system floats a few hundred yards from the outlet of Bologna Creek in the uh, Pacific Ocean or into the Pacific Ocean. Its twin booms extended to the shoreline to funnel trash uh, to a solar powered system that lifts objects from the water with a conveyor belt and drops them into six dumpsters. The trash collects in the dumpsters and awaits manual removal. On a recent Friday morning, members of the Public Works Agency were escorted to a local yacht club to witness uh, what could be the final trash offloading of the season. <clears throat> I've seen other versions of this. There is a lot more to this article. <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, apparently there's major problems with pollution in LA County waterways that will persist. They basically see the interceptor 007 as a successful project, but now they got to pay for it. So hmm. the burden cannot be put on the taxpayer, the residential property owner, or for that matter, the renter. I, I, I don't see how, uh, you can avoid that. <laughs> It's almost idiotic. The, the the problem here is that it is created by the residential property owner, the consumer, the citizen of the United States. So, of course, it's going to be pushed off to us. We are the ones that did this. And while you can say, well, you're not the one that did it, it doesn't matter. We're part of a community. We're part of a society. <laughs> You know, it's just ridiculous to think so vertical. There's nobody else. Blinders everywhere. Tunnel vision. Me, me, me. It's. I understand credit where credit is due, but. When you're trying to save the planet. (laughs) Anyway. And I guarantee your kids are going to end up embracing uh, that idea a whole lot more. Every successive generation since Reagan basically has seen the writing on the wall that society is getting greedier and greedier and mean. So, you know, the younger generation is moving more towards social and not socialism. Don't be dense. It's we're still a capitalist society, but it's called ethical capitalism. You don't have to step on everybody's necks just to get ahead. You, you don't have to be a bastard. You don't have to be a greedy bastard at that. Anyway, I'm done for tonight. I'm not going to soapbox. Um, probably the shortest episode in a long time, but I will bring you back to the front page of hometown where the gatherer has been, uh, you know, Toiling away, 
siloing stuff into the various categories and uh, we will continue to do the show 9 p.m eastern every single day i'll see you tomorrow bye bye